0: This podcast brought to you by TechSmith. More A2 is software for usability testing and user experience research, enabling you to test quickly and often, letting you solve real design issues. By PowerMapper. Mapping your site has never been easier. PowerMapper extracts links from each page of your site until it's mapped your entire site, providing you with a complete inventory. By OptimalSort. With an elegant user interface, powerful analysis, and outstanding support, OptimalSort can help you run successful card sorts better than you ever thought possible and by Boxes and Arrows. Since 2001, Boxes and Arrows has been a peer-written journal promoting contributors who want to provoke thinking, push limits, and teach a few things along the way. For other events happening all over the world, be sure and check out events.boxesandarrows.com. Senior Interaction Designer at Adaptopath, Kim Lennox, chats with Kevin Brooks, the Principal Staff Researcher for Motorola Labs, about his workshop entitled Storytelling for User Experience Design. They discuss various aspects of Kevin's presentation, including the importance of structure and patterns to guide creative endeavors, including the critical aspect of listening when striving to create a remarkable storytelling experience within your own organization. Kim shares her personal experience in attending art school and how the criticism of her art in school has helped her gain the confidence necessary today to be a successful interaction designer. On behalf of Boxes and Arrows, I'd like to thank Kim for volunteering to interview Kevin about this important subject for all in the field of user experience. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers.
1: I just uh, attended Kevin Brooks' workshop on storytelling, and um, I was able to see him speak last year at UX Week, and then um, he has an extended version of a workshop um, that he gave today. And um, Kevin Brooks works at uh, Motorola, and I'll let him introduce himself.
2: Um. So I. Work uh, at Motorola until recently. I was a researcher in a user, a user experience researcher, user interface researcher, um, in the uh, research division of Motorola uh, called Motorola Labs. Recently, I've moved over to one of the business divisions of Motorola that is focused on home uh, products, uh, primarily um, set-top box and television. Um, um, I am more aligned with design now, so I'm uh, a designer among engineers, largely, uh, which is a lot of fun. And so I'm uh, working on television interfaces.
1: So d- tell me how um, you mentioned in your intro at the workshop that you tell stories internally and externally. So tell me about how you tell stories, or in what applications do you tell stories at Motorola?
2: Um, well, again, um, with the job change, I don't have many sort of very recent examples, but. Largely, um, my stories have been about describing new technology. Engineers and researchers are typically very good at describing how a technology works. They will whip out a state chart like nobody's business. You know, boom, they'll tell you the state change of of, of all of the systems. And and the longer they work on a technology, especially in research, the more and more that research tends to get separated from human beings, mm-hmm. right. and it's rather hard to tell stories about uh, tell stories that don't involve either a person or something that is somewhat personified. Mm-hmm. And so stories are a way of bringing back that personification into a very technical um, and um, impersonal uh, description of something of how something works. Sometimes within Motorola, the term storytelling is a little difficult to swallow.
1: What I find interesting is that you, if I remember correctly, you don't have a design background. Right. And um, well, I guess it depends. Um, you've been designing for a long time, but you don't tech. You're not technically a designer.
2: I never went to design school, but I did go to film school. Uh-huh. So um, I think the film, my film background, helps a lot yeah. um, in certainly in storytelling, but also in trying to figure out what makes sense at a certain time, um, how people will react in a certain right. way. Right. Um,
1: what What I find interesting, though, about what you just described is that you um, you basically were saying that you are unearthing the users' behaviors and motivations for making that call,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that's what we do in experience design. Mm-hmm. So I I found it fascinating that you, you know, I would say, you know, we're finding the the needs, motivations, behaviors, desires, those are the things that I try to unearth when I do um, my research, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I describe my design work when I'm telling the story about the product in those ways of here's the motivation Mm -hmm. and here's how the product features support it and the technology so that the marketing guys are happy that their features are Illustrated the engineering guys are happy to see their technology illustrated Mm -hmm. and I have the motivations of the users Illustrated as well, and so that's that's how I end up telling my stories Mm -hmm. Um, But what you just described it is experience design basically is Mm -hmm. telling telling the story so um,
2: The, The other challenge that I had was because I worked all internal to a research organization I had to tell stories that the researchers not only understood but understood how it affected them. Mm, right. So they saw themselves, I think, somewhat in a more risky position because they were designing technology that had to be sold itself. Mm-hmm. So they had they were designing technology that would then get sold to, um, you yeah. know, sold or convinced or persuaded to be used by a product group mm-hmm. within Motorola. Mm-hmm. And so I was telling stories about not just the technology, but also about their implementation of the technology. And often I, I don't know, Mm -hmm. know, maybe you could call it I tripped over myself there, or I went back and forth about what my primary motivation was. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of the times my motivation was to be faithful to the technology and my vision of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes I had to let go of that. Sometimes I didn't necessarily agree with their implementation of it. Um, A lot of... A lot of engineers will feel uncomfortable when things aren't rooted to what they can implement. Mm-hmm. Um, and things are hanging out in the ether of what would be nice. Mm-hmm. Um, because it just it's just they just feel, oh, that's, that's not comfortable. Mm-hmm. what would be nice. Or what, what can we code now? And so I tended to um, my stories were almost always about what's in the future. Um, so uh, but trying to describe it, so that it's clear enough that they can see it as something that they can code in the future. Once they code step A, then it will be easy from that step, from that perspective. They can code step B, from that context, step C, and so that's sort of a roadmap that mm-hmm. can be coded. On a good day, I was successful. On a, you know, other days, not so successful. So it was, it was a learning experience.
1: And so now you're taking all of that knowledge and bringing it to the, the home uh, entertainment, is that the home? Entertainment
2: yeah, um, division? home. Uh, it's called Home and Network Mobility. Network. And um, uh, it, it's about the experience on a television, mm-hmm. um, which is exciting. It's some it's a part of Motorola that I've wanted to work with for a long time. and I've been working on projects with this division, but never from the inside. And so uh, uh, it's exciting, and I love the group I'm working for. Um, none of whom were designers, although one of the engineers does have a pretty strong design bent, uh, which is great, and it's I'm uh, uh, liking it.
1: I my background actually uh, was interactive TV for a while, and mm. so the DCT five thousand, it's a Motorola product. Uh-huh. It's a set top box. Yep, yeah. uh, drove me crazy.
2: <laughs> um, I can even tell you why it drove you crazy, um, because it wasn't designed for a consumer. It was designed for a customer, yeah. our customers, Comcast, Yeah. <laughs> or at and or Verizon, exactly. or one of the um, uh, European companies. Yeah. Yes. Yes, and that is, that is um, an old and well-known challenge within Motorola and other companies like Motorola.
1: Tell, tell me more. That
2: our customer is not our user. Mm-hmm. And so our customers' needs are different than our users' needs, especially when it comes to interface design. Because we design an interface, largely to sell an idea or technology to a customer. Mm-hmm. Very often the customer will change that interface for, to, to use their own interface. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to phones, it's this, um, uh, I guess, it's not really a collaboration, it's sort of like a, an agreement. <laughs> um a compromise between both sides, but largely it's the customer's you know choice and will that wins out. Uh, they're paying for it, they're buying it, they see it as their product, therefore it's their interface. You know, we made it, we're selling it to them, but you know, we want to you know have our own elements in it too. So it's 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 a constant um battle. In the television area, it's a little different because when you live in a certain area, you may only have one cable provider. Mm-hmm. Um, however, because of DSL and Verizon FiOS, there is more competition, and the competition is hard because it's the net, right? Right. It's the web. Yeah. Right. And so. And handheld devices. And handheld devices and all this stuff. So the the, the bar is set fairly high, mm-hmm. both on application functionality and on interface, mm-hmm. um, and and lots of new devices coming out now sort of change the playing field in many ways, and so. It is uh, interesting to be in this space now. I mean, I would have loved to have been in it 10 years ago. Right. Um, you know, when I was right out of school, that's yeah. when I was I was so hot to be in it. Now, after going through all this experience, um, it's interesting to be back into it. Some of my ideas from 10 years ago still relevant, mm-hmm. are more like interactive television. Mm-hmm. Um, interactive storytelling more than yeah. interactive television. Yeah. Um, the American view of interactive television is, you know, how can I sell something? or how can I have a different kind
1: of ad? The thing that I found interesting was all of these different parts of the puzzle um, and all of these different things that are competing with um, broadcast television or cable television. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, have you had the chance yet, since you're still fairly new, but have you had the chance to create a story specifically around all of the different competition to tell the story of the um, the mobile device and the internet, You know the, that there's um, vying interests and that um, people are no longer going home and watching television. That's not their sole entertainment device. Mm -hmm. Have you had a chance to tell that story yet?
2: Not in my current job. I have told similar stories in my previous job, which included television. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of that was envisioning what the future can be like. Mm -hmm. you know what does it mean to always be in connection with your home Mm -hmm. what is it in your home that you always want to be connected to Mm -hmm. is it your refrigerator to tell you that the milk is spoiled it's a very old use case Mm -hmm. Um, never really interested me it just told me that a lot of people don't like to be in the kitchen or can you be connected to the flow of entertainment and information that's coming into your house anyway which is your set-top box and mm-hmm. or a smarter version thereof. Can you be connected to the appliances or the or the security systems or you know, anything else that is any other system that's in your house so that you know what you're coming home to? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people actually don't feel the need for that, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people also don't lock their doors at night. Right. Um, a lot of other people live in places where one they do lock their doors at night, and you know the nature of their house you know, is kind of up for grabs during the day. They want to know that the house is okay, Mm -hmm. And it's a part of their everyday experience. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily part of the everyday experience of the people who design these systems. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so that's the part of where you tell your story. Something that um, I was thinking about in all of this is um, what what I learned today in your workshop is... um, the way you communicate um, is by standing in front of people and telling a story. There's a physical presence. I saw your pauses. I saw your expressions. I saw your hand movements. There was a story of the little boy looking up at the very tall man. And you've craned your neck to express the boy looking up at you. How do you do that if you're not physically? Like, how do you tell the story when you're not physically there? Or are you actually flying around the country telling the story? <laughs>
2: So in this academy, no, I'm not flying around and telling the story. Um,
1: so you know, thinking about the audience listening, mm-hmm. um, how can they incorporate stories beyond use cases? Um, and you know, what are those communication tools that they can use?
2: Right. Well, let's see. One of the earliest stories I told um, in Motorola uh, was, and it was surprisingly simple and very effective. More effective than I thought it was, probably because it was simple and we had no budget. Um, So, uh, and it's surprising, you know, it's a corporate group. We had a budget of about uh, 600 bucks. Um, And we told a story about the future of voice interface. Mm -hmm. Um, And what is that experience like? And we did it by hiring a cartoonist and actors to be voice actors, Mm -hmm. and we added and we wrote a script um, one of the researchers wrote the script that I helped to edit, and we created this talking comic book., okay. kind of thing. Um, now, and it was, and we literally did it with you know, the student the, the actors were students. Mm-hmm. so they could do it for a little money and pizza,? Right, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and the the cartoonist was also a student, but uh, did a really great job. We created this thing that played well. Now, I was new to Motorola, so I didn't understand the culture well enough. One of the things I learned from that experience is that the way that the corporate culture tells stories is in PowerPoint. Mm. So no matter what flash or dash or whatever sparkle you add to a story, if that story can be included in PowerPoint, it goes a long way to being a win. Okay. Right? Very simple. Is it PowerPoint? Cool. So, because we generated a number of comic book images that people could copy and paste in PowerPoint and help tell the story their way, so the research manager could tell, retell the story his way. Mm-hmm. Other people could tell the story his way using the same images, more or less the same story. And a few times, I assume, they heard the whole audio visual. Version from beginning to end, it was maybe three minutes long.
1: Mm-hmm. And what,
2: was it done in Flash or Director or something? It or was in done time? in QuickTime, so it okay. was a movie. Okay. Actually, it was a movie yeah. um, that we used stills to create, and we just included those stills in a mm-hmm. you know, little folder. You know, here's mm-hmm. a director of stills. Here, here they are. Mm-hmm. Right? So they can watch the entire QuickTime movie. Mm-hmm. They can incorporate the stills in their own versions of the presentation. Mm-hmm. So they can talk about the statistical analysis necessary to do a certain kind of recognition. Mm-hmm. Telling stories that could be retold by people is a part of the corporate culture, and they have to re, be able to reappropriate those stories. Okay. Um, I don't want to give the impression that all of them is like this, but it's like sort of like the not-invented-here problem. Um, if it's your idea, then you like it more. Well, if you are told a story that you can then appropriate and retell to be your story, you like it more. So as long as you can tell a story and not feel, and not have your ego attached to it, but allow it to be used as a tool, then that's one way of getting stories out in that type of culture.
1: When you were speaking of that, that really made me um, think of that's a great tip for people, even if they aren't in Motorola and they don't have that culture, to um, be able to give the different artifacts so that other people can tell the story. So that you gave them still images that they could incorporate into their own piece. Mm-hmm. You gave them the full presentation, but you also gave them all the other things that they can use to, um, to pick and choose the aspects of the story that they wanted to tell. That's something that mm-hmm. um, I guess I've done, but not with intention. Mm-hmm. And I'm definitely going to use that one. <laughs>
2: Good. I can also tell you a version of the story gone bad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, Motorola hired a design firm. And, who shall not be named. Who shall not be named. And I am sure paid them an enormous amount of money to come up with these new ideas for an area of technology. And in the end, what this design firm did was tell an elaborate, huge story. Um, and it was very experiential. Mm-hmm. In order to understand the issues, they talked to upper management, as in the, the executive, mm-hmm. corporate executive team, um, and those below um, the, the CTO at that time to be able to craft these stories. They used this huge space and built this environment in order to project the video of their stories for this technology. I'm not sure how much they talked to the um, sort of the line engineers and researchers, because the people who then, were the or the first level managers, because the people who then were brought in, because Motorola people were brought in in droves um, to see the set of stories, and they would see it, and almost universally, what I saw was people going, uh, "So, it's a story." and it was clean and it was it was it was clean cut it was it was precise it was there it was untouchable it was something that they could not bring into inside themselves and they had to do so much work to reappropriate this beautiful design work that was done that they just wanted to know okay so what are we going to go build then after the stories were told, some of the designers came out and said, "Here are physical prototypes, examples of some of the things that we had in mind, and they were a little ticky tacky compared to the grand vision that mm-hmm. um, they put on. You know, the little, I mean, they weren't functional prototypes; they were just like you know, you know hacked models. together models, right, yeah. with flashing lights. The engineers were further set back by like." What's that where does the battery go i can't believe you know where how's someone going to hold that how you know where's the antenna in that device you know, I don't know. they were so um they, that's the level that they design. Mm-hmm. you know they could have done that better if if the design elements could have been appropriated by these first level managers or by the various people and taken pieces of it and then have them digest it and let it sort of virally spread through the company mm-hmm. that would have worked instead what happened was that you know, the orders came down from on high mm-hmm. um, to start start using these ideas. Mm-hmm. So it was forced down, which, yeah, in a hierarchical corporation, that's one way to do it, but you know, a lot of people who are kind of zombies who do the things but are not really feeling passionate about these ideas.
1: So do you think that um, in addition to helping them, having the, what do you call them, the first line managers? Mm-hmm. Giving them tools so that they can champion the cause, yeah. um, that's one thing. But also, do you think maybe bringing them into the conversation before they finished it?
2: Sure, or recognizing that they all have problems to solve. Mm-hmm. Right? So um, like in every company, they are given, or they establish at the beginning of the year, a set of goals mm-hmm. that they have. Their job isn't on the line. It's Not so much that, but it's sort of dramatic. But their job is to satisfy those goals mm-hmm. through the course of the year. And then they have evaluations to see how well they're doing on those goals. And so we all want to be good at our goals. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, when these ideas came from on high, they had nothing to do with the goals. They were completely separate from the goals that these managers have. Mm-hmm. Right. And so this big thing, why should they have anything to do with this? So if any of that, that design material, those, those design stories, could be appropriated, the managers could have done the work to figure out how they can solve their problem, mm-hmm. um, or the, those managers could have been used in the process to say, okay, here's what my problems are. Mm-hmm. This is what I have to come up with. Mm-hmm. And then the images could have been modified or, or adjusted, or, or they could have been shown how the images how the story goes. Right. Um, so that's a part of the process. You know, the image, the the grand vision itself doesn't have to change that much, but the process of getting there does.
1: The, the thing that I think, um, that I observed in the room that shocked everybody is that the majority of the workshop was about listening. And it there was a disconnect, I noticed at the break, with some people that they just kinda, why, why do I need to listen? And you know, the, and it was, you know, I don't want to hear my coworkers' problems. I don't want to, you know. And um, I, I think, you know, in the afternoon, it, I think it hit home with doing the third exercise. Um, but I, I, I found it fascinating that um, some people really got it, mm-hmm. and other people had this, you know, why do I need to listen right. to be a storyteller? I just want to be a good storyteller. Um, do, do you have any suggestions of why that happens or what? Well.
2: Well, I know that part of the reason why it happened is that, um, you know, I can always improve in the way that I do workshops. No, 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 that's no, 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 not no, what like, I meant. No, no, really, because it's something that I see um, as well, and, and I know that's not where you're going, but, <laughs> but uh, one of the things that I find that I probably should do more is reiterate the reason why people are doing things, because... Um, I love doing one of the things i mentioned a lot in the workshop, which is setting up expectation mm-hmm. and satisfying some of them and violating many of them, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So setting up an expectation and violating
1: it. You succeeded.
2: Yeah, <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, And then um, having people sort of learn something from that violation and, and then setting up other expectation based on their new way of seeing the world or seeing, mm-hmm. seeing the context, often what people one of the things that people need when their expectations are being violated is reiterating that things are okay. It's okay. It's mm-hmm. okay. It's okay in some in some manner. Mm-hmm. And what I should have said, and what I should have reiterated, is that listening is a fundamental part of storytelling. Mm-hmm. You cannot tell stories without listening. Right? And to reiterate that and to give you know tiny little examples of that, because you know that will get them into the next phase sort of a little bit more confidently but uh, but yeah I'm, I'm, i know that some people sort of get it you know i'm still really surprised that storytelling is not taught in design school designers mostly tell stories i mean my understanding of the design process you know is you listen to stories in the front of your clients and users and what the problem is and what you're trying to solve you figure out who the users are or the market segment and you Ask them a bunch of questions, or you do whatever the structure is, and you elicit stories from them. And then you go off and you don't do some design, and then a lot of it is telling stories about that work, that design work that you did, um, and it's telling stories to all the stakeholders, and your client, and your other designers to make sure it's good. And it's a lot of telling, and in the middle of it is this piece of design that. Um, it seems like all of design school is focused on. Mm -hmm. Um, And not so much of it is about listening. And surprisingly, because it's the money part, not so much of it is about telling. I'm really surprised.
1: Well, I I think what you described is a successful project or a successful product, and listening to what the issues are, and then going over through the design process, and then telling the story. That doesn't always happen. over my career, um, there's the, here's your features that you have to build to and design to. Here's the technical constraints. Now do it. Mm-hmm. There's no time for research. There's no time for um, understanding the user. It's build it. And then when you're done, you have a technical specification that you've delivered to the engineering team, and then they build it. And that's it. And the engineers then pick and choose the things that they want to do. and things that they don't want to do and there's no communication between. You know, that's mm-hmm. a typical software situation.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, the, you know, a, a better idea is to actually have everybody communicating. What I've learned over the years is that um, the best way that I can get my designs um, implemented is by communicating what the story is and telling the user's story. Telling the, mm-hmm. the product's, you know, life. Um, and the, you know what what the journey is, what that full experience is um, and I tell the different story depending on if it's an executive or a technical person or you know business person, whatever it might be. Um, and so um, I think what's interesting is that um, y- you hit the nail on the head that the schools are still focusing on the design aspects um, And you know in in art school when I was in art school, um, we were taught to, defend our designs or defend our art and accept constructive criticism or you know just criticism outright and defend the work Mm -hmm. Um, but in the real world not everybody has that that background Mm -hmm. and that um, training and so um, it's not as easy to critique somebody's work um, if they haven't had art training or design training Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so um it's it's taken too personally, or it's taken you know out of context and that sort of thing, and so it makes it much more complex.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and I I actually have found that even designers that are getting out of school now can't accept constructive criticism either. And hmm. they're in school. I would think that, you know that I was beaten down, just absolutely beaten down. My artwork was just you know pulverized until I could actually stand on my own two feet and say. Yes, this is important and this is valuable, and mm-hmm. I'm defending my my artwork. Mm-hmm. But what I was doing in that is telling the story of the artwork, mm-hmm. and that's that was my training. But I, I have noticed that it's it doesn't seem to be a large portion proportion of the training. Maybe maybe it's just the people that I've encountered.
2: Well, I, I would also imagine that from that experience in art school that you are a wonderful success story. I'm sure that. <laughs> That there are people who were likewise beaten down, that didn't learn to tell a story from that, that didn't um, learn that sense of confidence mm-hmm. um, from being able to sort of either structure the argument or mm-hmm. present the argument. That you know what they walk away with is mostly being beaten down. Right. Right. Um, and you know that's. You know, you know, which is too bad. I think that a lot of places are like that. I, mm-hmm. I know that, you know, when I was in film school, people—this was graduate school. These were adults going to graduate school. They would leave critiques crying. Mm-hmm. Like, cry, why are you crying? He said nothing about you. He was talking about your film, you know. And they don't have that separation between mm-hmm. their work and their who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, and. I would also imagine that if you had an experience where you gave a critique and made someone cry or feel uncomfortable, that you would be very sort of gun-shy about doing that for others, even when it's clearly necessary. Really, the important part of the story is the imagery, Mm -hmm. and you're free to tell that imagery, at least in this workshop, you're really free to tell that imagery when you know. When you are guaranteed that the other person is not going to interrupt you. And so you had to go through those first two exercises in order to do the third exercise where someone could just sort of relax and fall deeply into that imagery and uh, know that they can pause and breathe and someone isn't going to jump in. And they can take the time that they wanted and they can get lost in it. So now, if this was a story that they needed to do for work, they can do that exercise of just with someone else there listening to just the imagery and seeing what comes up. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay, what's what are the more powerful images out of there? What are the more powerful pieces? Those are the pieces that need to be in the presentation. Those are the pieces that the technology is really going to speak to, or the the, the our, our design approach is really going to speak to. I've seen this with Designers, I've seen this with engineers. Um, I got to do a workshop for researchers, largely graduate student researchers at MIT. Mm-hmm. And this was, I think, it was two hours. And this was telling stories for money, you know, because all of the stories they tell are for money. They're for research grants. They're for sponsors. They're, you know, so how do you tell? Your story about your research, so that it's important. Mm-hmm. So there was this one researcher, and we had them go around the room and say where they were from, and they were from every part of MIT. Pizza, you know, majors that I never knew existed. This woman was telling you know her work, and because MIT is such a multicultural place, um, each person was telling the story with elements of their culture,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: they didn't know it. You know, so they would tell some elements from their tradition of storytelling Mm -hmm. were in the way that they told about their research. Mm. Um, And so this one woman um, who happened to be from India was telling her story, and there were a bunch of people from her group there in computational biology. um, And she um, told about her professor, and she told about her her experiments, Mm -hmm. and she told about so a little bit about the computer and the algorithms and what she's going in the type of lab and and we gave them like one minute or two minutes or something and she was doing all this and she was she was clearly running out of time and she was hurrying and hurrying up and, and I I and we're working that if if this is successful it could cure cancer, <laughs> uh, you know and so we're all like. Uh, honey, you may want to start with that. You you should lead with that part of the story. <laughs> That's the hook. Yeah, that that is it. Right, and so because she is so entrenched in the lab and the experiments and the work and you know this you know world renowned professor, it's easy to lose track about. Oh, and it can help a lot. Wow. All right. So that is the story. You start there, and now it provides a very different context for all of the
1: um, So I just want to wrap up saying thank you, Kevin, for taking the time. This was great chatting with
2: you. Yeah, thank you. It's been fun.
1: Yeah, we should have had some beers with us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: It would have gone much longer. More <laughs> editing. <laughs>